So it's good to see everybody here. Um, people, some last time, come all the way from London. I don't know, some of you perhaps not aware that yesterday we had a, an ordination ceremony. Samanera Wisudi over here, who many of you would have seen um, getting around in, in uh, Mahayana robes, uh, where he had taken his his Shramanera, as they say in Sanskrit, precepts in Hong Kong with his master over there, um, I think something like 18 months ago. And then his master uh, sadly passed away. Uh, but before he passed away, uh, he made it very clear to his uh, attendant and disciple, who was uh, Shramanera Dogat, that wherever he could find a teacher that was good for him, he wanted to endorse that. And so he even signed a letter and, and encouraged him. If, if he finds a teacher in the Theravadan tradition where he's comfortable and confident, then he wants to encourage him. The most important thing is that, uh, that we have uh, confidence in what we're doing. It reminded me in very much of uh, my own experience when I lived in Thailand, where I first lived with a teacher, Ajahn Tate, and... Ajahn Tate was very unwell, and I only spent about five or six months with him and had some contact, for which I'm very, very grateful, but he was getting uh, more ill as the years went by, and I wanted to go and live with Ajahn Chah. But uh, uh, you may know there are these different sects and traditions and so on, and Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Tate didn't belong to the same tradition in, in Thailand, and so I, in fact, had to disrobe and reordain again. But my preceptor at the time, although I didn't really want to do it, I didn't want to disrobe, I didn't want to leave what I had uh, taken on and feeling very grateful for. But uh, my preceptor pointed out to me at the time, he said, he said, uh, he said, all I'm concerned about is that you're confident and happy as a monk. I don't mind who you live with, which teacher you live with, so long as you're confident and happy. And, uh, and it reminds me that this is, that this is really the, this is the whole point of the Buddhist teachings and one reason why I found that uh, I, I could give myself to it so wholeheartedly, that, that this is a religion that, that works on happiness. It's about happiness. It's about pleasure. It's about joy. And so much my own personal experience in early life was religion was about anything but happiness, about guilt and intimidation and, and boring situations that I found myself in and, and I won't go into any further detail um, fear of falling into wrong speech but when I came across uh, my Buddhist teachers these were really happy people and then when I read the teachings the actual the, the scriptures you realize the Buddha talked a lot about joy and happiness and pleasure he wasn't afraid of pleasure in fact there's one of the most famous discourses uh, the Buddha's teachings he he talks about the meditator. When pleasure arises, the meditator knows there is pleasure. He doesn't say, oh, well, yeah, I don't know, I can, this is maybe going to get in trouble, going to get carried away with this. Or, or, uh, just, he just knows, or she just knows. One just knows. And this, is, and this is what the Buddha is. The Buddha is the one who knows. That's, the Buddha is awake. That's what the word means. It's not like being called Bruce or Murray or something. Buddha actually means one who is awake, one who knows. And, and so on this occasion of the celebration of the Buddha's birth and enlightenment and, and the honoring of his passing away, his parinibbana, I think this is something really worth uh, paying attention to, to, to give some contemplation to. Our relationship to joy, to pleasure, to happiness. How do we feel about it? Uh, is it increasing in our life? It is quite possible that we, even though this is the point of the Buddhist teaching, is to, to arrive at unshakable happiness, ultimate happiness, supreme happiness. Yeah. There's one little verse, one little stanza that we recite regularly, which is, 
This is the ultimate happiness. What is the ultimate happiness? Is knowing Dhamma. Is knowing the Dhamma of the way things are. Everything that arises ceases. It's just so. That's what it is. Everything that arises ceases. Everything that's born dies. This is the way of things. This is the flow. This is natural. This is how it is. This is life. Knowing life, knowing life, is the ultimate happiness. So it's not running away from life. It's not, uh, not avoiding our responsibility in life and saying, oh, well, actually somebody else is taking care of it all. Yeah. And that when I die, it's going to be better. No, it's rather knowing life. Knowing life in all its aspects in its joy and in its sorrow. And uh, the Buddha's own experience and uh, his life, we we're probably all aware of the, the story of the Buddha's experience of 29 years of, of trying to be happy by uh, getting good at having uh, a lot of pleasure. And we're told that, he, told that he succeeded. He was very successful. Everything he did, he was he was top in basically all his studies and his intellect and his sporting skills and his and his relationships and and everything. He uh, he was completely successful then, and yet at the age of twenty nine, he uh, when he encountered the disagreeable side of life, old age, sickness, and death, when this kind of came in his face, and he couldn't avoid it anymore. It tends to happen around 29. We can, we can manage to kid ourselves about life for the first 20, 30 years. But by that time, you know, you can't fool yourself anymore and you're just thinking, wow, is this what it's all about? Well, that's what happened to the Buddha about the age of 29. And uh, he sank into a depression, so to speak. I mean, not clinical, but I think he, he certainly got disillusioned with life. All his experiences up until that point couldn't protect him all the pleasure he'd had up to that point couldn't protect him from despair. And so he got to thinking, well, is there any way, is there any way of living this life where you can go beyond despair? Is that possible? Is there any way of living this life and without suffering? That great doubt, that great precious doubt arose. And you might think when that sort of question arises, that's some sort of a, uh, an obstruction. Well, no, that's not an obstruction, because actually that's, that's when something starts to open, when we suspect that things are not the way they look. You know, getting, developing, getting another degree, you know, or going and studying with another teacher, or getting another girlfriend or boyfriend, or, or buying another sound system, or whatever. When we start to question that, that's that doubt that the Buddha had. That's the same doubt the Buddha had when he was 29 years old. He said, well, maybe this... Maybe there's no end to this. Maybe every time you follow the impulse to gratify sensual desire, it's always going to get you to the same place, which is that every time you, you want to scratch your itch, you do, and you feel good for a moment because you're freed from the irritation of the itch. But guess what happens? Well, we all know that not only does the itch come back, but that you risk infection. And that's what happens. We keep scratching our itch and scratching our itch until... The great doubt arises and says, oh, maybe, maybe I shouldn't scratch this itch. You know, after 29 years of scratching my itch, it hasn't gotten any better. In fact, it's gotten bad. Yeah. And so at 29 years, the Buddha stopped scratching the itch and decided to try something else. And that was when he uh, let go of his pursuit of sensual pleasure, which had been not a mindful pursuit of sensual pleasure. It had been actually one whereby he was just basically just taking it for all he could get. And that was demonstrated because then he went to the other extreme of avoiding all pleasure. So instead of indulging in pleasure, he went to avoiding pleasure. And it became this great ascetic. And you read the Buddha's own description and his own words about the extent to which he became a renunciate and, and took on extreme austerities. Uh, the ultimate austerities, to the point where, in fact, as we all know, he very nearly died. Some of you have 
perhaps seen that photo, the, the photograph of the image of the Buddha, the skeleton of the Buddha. He, could touch his, he said he could touch his spine you know, by pushing in his belly. He could touch his spine. He was that skinny. And he was nearly dead. And, and still, he hadn't found that unshakable happiness. So 29 years of seeking happiness through grasping at pleasure and indulging in pleasure didn't work. Five or six years of denying all pleasure and avoiding it, that didn't work. And so at that point he said, okay, well, if I carry on, I'll die. And so he started eating. And at that point, well, you know what happened? His friends all left him. So now he's failed at everything. He's completely rejected, even his last five friends. He's, he left the palace, so he's left his family, he's left his wife, left his kid, left the realm, and left all his previous teachers. And here he is under the Bodhi tree, rejected by all his friends. And the only thing he's got left, the only thing he's got left is this resolve to be free. There's nothing on the outside left anymore. His health is gone, and, and he's just eaten a little bit of milk rice. Sujata brought in this milk rice, and so on that point, everybody rejected him, and he's left alone. But what's alive, what's alive and so important is this interest in freedom. This interest in freedom. And, and by following that interest in freedom, and of course, we shouldn't forget, the accumulation of many, many lifetimes of, of the, the parameters of patience, of generosity, of, of kindness, of, of uh, integrity, uh, the, the ten parameters, and the, the accumulation of these forces coming together with this unshakable resolve to realize freedom, not just for himself, but also for all beings. This was very important. It wasn't just a selfish concern of, you know, may I be free, which, of course, was understandable and important. But also what was clear in the Buddha's mind, and he spoke about this, was there also the sensitivity, the compassion for all these beings. He could see them everywhere, suffering. And this compassionate wish, not just for himself, but for all beings. May beings be free from suffering. How can, what do you do? What, how can you realize this freedom? So this interest was the only thing he had left. Uh, everything else had gone. And as we know and celebrate today, well, tomorrow is the, the full moon of this month, the month of Waisak. Uh, all those factors came together with that important interest in freedom and he arrived at realization. At realization, the understanding that, that it's not the objects of pleasure that get us into trouble, but it's the way we understand, the way we relate to pleasure. It gets us into trouble. It's not even pain. Most people complain about the pain of their life. Say, oh, this has gone wrong, that's gone wrong, and I'm unhappy, and I've got a sore toe, and arthritis is setting in, and I've got a headache, and I've got a cold again. And we're complaining about the pain of it. We don't complain about pleasure, but actually we should complain about pleasure because it's pleasure that gets us into trouble. It's not, and it's not, well, it's not the pleasure that gets us into trouble, but it's the way we relate to the pleasure. And this is a the great insight, the understanding the Buddha had, that the suffering that we have all comes from, all comes from a way of relating to life that doesn't accord with truth. Life is like this. Pleasure arises, but pleasure ceases. Do we accord with that truth? No way. Yeah. Yeah, pleasure arises, give me more. You know, this is a good cup of coffee, I hope it lasts forever. The sun's out, remember a few days ago, do you remember? A few days ago, oh, the sun's here. <laughs> oh, the sun's gone. <laughs> why do we get disappointed when the sun's gone? Well, there's only one reason why we get disappointed when the sun's gone. <laughs> because when the sun is here, we actually we make something out of it. We do something about the pleasure that creates a problem. That's the thing. And so well, the, the Buddha's realization was there is something we can do about this. We're not victims. We don't need some external authority to bless us or even tell us. Teachers can point the way, excuse me, can point the way. But what we need to do is to investigate and come to see for ourselves what are we doing about our relationship with life, the joy and sorrow of life. What are we doing that means we get stuck? We don't flow. We lose the flow. 
Yeah. When we're flowing, we all know what it's like when you're flowing, when you're flowing with life. There's, a, there's an appropriateness about it. So yes, there's a, yes, this is, you know, there's a, there's a goodness, there's a natural happiness and, and contentment and ease when we're flowing with life. When we lose the flow, well, the tendency is to say, who's done something wrong? <laughs> Somebody's done something wrong. Somebody's disappointed me. Or Northumberland weather. I heard somebody complain, blaming Northumberland earlier today. It's Northumberland. No, it's not. It's not Northumberland. It's not my health. It's not. But it's something we do here. And so there's an understanding that the Buddha realized on the full moon of Waisa, 2,500 and something years ago. There's an understanding that he arose at, arrived at, which he called the middle way which is experiencing pleasure and joy when it arises, but with that perspective on it whereby we don't turn it into a problem. Usually when we're experiencing pleasure, we don't think there's a problem, but we don't see what's going on. Like for the first 29 years of his life, the Buddha had a lot of pleasure, but only when he was confronted with old age, sickness and death did he see the result of the kind of relationship he had with pleasure. It didn't protect him. You know, usually with pleasure, we, we just think we should have more. The more, the better. I need more pleasure. That's what I need. If I have more pleasure, I'm going to be really happy and contented. But how much pleasure have we had? Yeah. So there's fleeting moments of pleasure that we experience without what the Buddha referred to as clear seeing, or seeing clearly, samaditi. The moments of pleasure, those moments of pleasure, they don't do it. And in fact, sometimes... What's called for is letting go of our pursuit of pleasure, not to the extent that the Buddha did, and he in fact spoke against that afterwards. Atta yogo, he called it, self-mortification. Atta yogo, he said, it's, it's a dead end. Just, there was only one place it goes, and that's to misery. Yeah. In fact, he had about four or five Pali words for misery, but they basically all mean the same thing. Yeah. Don't go there. See, if you... If you grasp at pain, that's not going to do it either. Grasping at pleasure is not it. Grasping at pain is not it. But rather, exercising mindful restraint, even though you feel the itch, even though you feel the itch, you really want to scratch, you use, you use the discernment to say, well, what happened last time? And then you inhibit. And in inhibiting the tendency to scratch, not repressing, that's the thing. That's not the middle way. Denying pleasure is not the middle way. Denying the impulse. Say, yes, I definitely want to scratch. Definitely. But am I going to? No. Not. Because I know what happened last time. So I, uh, I was, somebody emailed me some weeks ago a very interesting uh, story. Uh, it was a news item about this man in China, Mr. Wong, who, um, unfortunately in China, with all this m amazing development they've got going on there, they're not very good on safety regulations. If our health and safety officer here, Arjun Abhinanda, went over there, he'd have a field day. I mean, he'd be closing all the construction sites down. And uh, poor Mr. Wong was digging a five-meter ditch without any protection. He had no, there was no walls holding it back or anything. He was down there digging this ditch five meters down. All he had was a crash helmet. That was the only protection he had. And very sadly um, and frighteningly, the whole thing collapsed on him. I don't know if you read about this story. And uh, Mr. Wong is covered by this, this yellow mud, basically. It, was, it wasn't just you know, a few stones. It was mud collapsed on him, five meters of it. And, uh, and so his workers, the, the companions, of course, you know, immediately tried to get him out. And, but they can't dig because Mr. Wong's down there. And you, you, know, you can't take a pickaxe or something. So it took two hours two hours with their hands scraping away. And there's a photo of Mr. Wong's head coming out of the mud. He was alive. And then he describes what happened was, he said, well, he said the first thing I knew was it was just suddenly went dark. But he realized that if he was careful, there was a little bit of air pocket trapped under his helmet, just a little air pocket. And he became very aware, he was a Buddhist, and uh, he became very aware that if he panicked, he would use up the oxygen very quickly. And so he said he forced, he forced his mind to be still and he forced himself to relax. He used the word force. I made myself calm down. I made myself calm down. 
And he stopped his breathing. Well, he didn't stop it. He slowed his breathing down. It was very subtle breathing. Very subtle breathing. And through the discipline. He, you know, it wasn't just summoning, oh, I think I'll do this today. And he'd been practicing. And as a result, the doctors called it a miracle. It wasn't actually a miracle. This is, this is skillful living. And he came out with an interesting story. Um, and thankful, very grateful that he survived. Completely unharmed, actually. Now, it's not because Mr. Wong, he didn't accept the situation as, as something that was thoroughly agreeable. Like, you know, but he did stop fighting. You know, sometimes when we find ourselves in difficult situations, we have this idea, if I stop fighting, then I'm going to be seen as a weakling. You know, like you're dealing with a difficult person in business and people often tell me after I give a dumber talk and say, oh, if I do that, people will just walk all over me. You know, or sometimes you meet people who've been insulted and hard done by and, or hurt or in some way or other, and, and they resent life. There's a, there's a bitterness there. And, and they have this resentment they carry around with them all the time. And, and you try and describe how this bitterness is hurting them by saying, but they'll get away with it. I say, well, even if they get away with it, look what's happening to your life. And they say, but I can't, you know, if I let go of my resentment. The middle way is a relationship to life where there is absolutely no resistance whatsoever. It's a surrender. And that's what Mr. Wong did. Mr. Wong surrendered to the situation. Didn't make him weak. It, didn't mean, it doesn't mean to say that he liked the situation. He certainly didn't like the situation, being in a mudslide. He didn't agree with his situation, but he wasn't fighting the situation. That's the difference. And so in our relationship with, with life, uh, when we hear these teachings and this encouragement to surrender to the situation we're in, to not fight the situation, to receive the situation, and then the fear comes up, Say, so, well, if I capitulate, if I collude with this, well, then it'll take me over, or it's a sign I'm weak, or whatever. Say, so, well, don't be so sure about that. That's the way it appears. But actually, in truth, that's Mara. That's Mara speaking. Yeah. When we stop fighting, what happens is a whole different set of faculties become available. A whole different perspective on things. So long as we're fighting, there's negativity in the system. We're fighting because we resent or we're afraid. And when we're caught up in fear and resentment, then there's negativity in the system and the mind is very limited. If we want to be able to see the situation clearly, if we want to be able to uh, contemplate our predicament, then there does need to be a letting go of resistance. And so, as I said, when we find ourselves in these situations and then there's a fear comes up and, and said, oh, no, you've got to keep fighting. Yeah. Well, that's not what the Buddha was doing. The Buddha wasn't sitting under the Bodhi tree fighting, but neither was he capitulating. He wasn't saying, oh, Mara, whatever, go ahead. Yeah, no way. I mean, look at that picture down the back there, the painting. The other they were fighting with the Buddha, but the Buddha wasn't fighting with them. The Buddha was staying with his resolve to be free, to be interested. Mr. Wong was interested. If he wasn't interested in being free, he would have said, oh, well, that's that. Or he would have panicked. But because he was interested in being free and he had prepared himself with good Buddhist training, he was in the optimum position to be able to surrender to the situation and to apply the skill, just the skill that was needed to survive. And I, I, it reminds me of an experience I had, and some of you will have heard me tell the story before, and, or if you've read Ajahn Brahma Wongso's book, he, he wrote all about it in one of his books. I don't know if he got all the details accurate, but it was a good story anyway. When I was, I was taking a little aqua therapy off the coast of New Zealand one day, I was out with a friend, and um, I didn't check to see what was happening, and I, I was out there in the waves refreshing myself. We, I was walking along the coast with a good friend, and and uh, it was very, very hot, and there was nobody else around. And so we just put our packs down and, and just went into the water. And, and within seconds, I was caught in a riptide. And I never had this experience before. I'm growing up in New Zealand, we're always on the beach. And, and I heard about riptides and, and everything. And, uh, but I just, well, it's not going to happen to me. I'm a very good swimmer. 
And but within seconds, I was caught in this riptide and pulled down and out. And I can feel it's being pulled out. I can see the, the coast going further and further away. And, and my friend was, uh, he was actually a lifesaver. And we've been talking about what happens if you get into danger. At sea, you put one arm up. At least this is the code in New Zealand. And, and people understand that you're in t- trouble. And I, I went to put an arm up, but then I realized, well, actually, he'll come out and he'll get caught in the riptide because there's no way you could fight this riptide. And, 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 and succeed. But what happened for me in that situation was a surrender took over. I surrendered to it. And I had learned this particular breathing technique at the time, a breathing for, for deep, deep relaxation that a friend of mine who was a breath therapist had taught me. And, and this, this, uh, this breathing technique required total relaxation. So I just, I just let myself relax and I'm floating across the top of the waves, going up further and further from the shore. But in my mind kept coming up this thing, you've got to fight, you've got to fight to save yourself. But every time I followed that, the breath became inhibited and I started to sink. And so release again, relax. And say, but you've got to fight. Relax. The fighting, that's, you've got to fight, that's Mara. You've got to fight. That's the conditioned, that's the conditioned tendency. I've got to save myself. And it's not the other extreme of, oh, well, I give up, I'm going to die anyway. It's not that one. So it's not indulgence and it's not avoidance, but that middle way where you're interested in surviving, you're interested in finding freedom. Mr. Wong was interested in getting free from the hole. I was interested in in being free from the risk of drowning and the sharks that were on my mind and these thoughts kept coming up and Australia is not far away. <laughs> and, oh, Ajahn Sumedha is going to be angry with me after all I've done for him. And, and my mother's going to be upset. And these thoughts kept coming in. I said, no, relax. Just don't even worry about your mother. Don't worry about Ajahn Sumedha. Don't worry about trying to save yourself. Don't worry about anything. Let go of all the, that conditioning and just trust. Just trust. Come back to being in the body and trusting. And, and in my mind, I actually said, oh, let the Buddha take over. Yes, uh, or I trust in the Buddha. So the impulse that we have to, to grasp actually is the thing, very thing that kills us. It would have killed Mr. Wong and probably would have killed me. What happened in that situation was that the, uh, the current that I was caught in took me along the coast. And... Uh, I didn't realize that, I found it afterwards, that's what you're supposed to do if you get caught in a riptide. You just go with it and then you go down the coast a bit and then you can go in. I found that out afterwards. Well, anyway, I've been out there long enough and I'll see if one of these waves is going to take me in. And so I, uh, I gave myself a push to see if this wave would take me ashore. And then, of course, you get caught in the waves and you're being pummeled and all the air's gone out of you. And, and, uh, and I could put my feet down, afraid that I was going to get caught in a riptide again, but I could just touch the sand and, and I would just drag myself ashore. And, and I was exhilarated. I, I was absolutely exhilarated because I'd witnessed something. I witnessed that fighting is not the way, that surrender is the way. It's something, I mean, I can't, don't really even know how to talk about it, but I, something had happened in that situation that gave rise to tremendous happiness. It was my friend who was in trouble. He was, I mean, the language this guy was using was atrocious. I had to calm him down. <laughs> so the lesson of, um, one of the great lessons of life and, and uh, one way of understanding the middle way that the Buddha was teaching is that it's not the experiences we have, it's not that we're not going to experience pain or sorrow or loss or joy or bliss, but even, even bliss, if we grasp at it, we get lost. Yeah. Sorrow, if we grasp at it, we get lost. If we grasp at anything, this is not a doctrine, but this is something to investigate. If we grasp at anything, then we interrupt the flow of life. Now, this is all a way of talking. This is not a doctrine. This teaching is not to be grasped either, but something to take in and to consider. And, and, and when we're experiencing anger, experiencing anger, the conditioned tendency, the conditioned me, the indignation, when indignation arises, the tendency, there is a tendency there to want to grasp it, isn't it? And to become. You know, you, I read the news this morning about these insane Burmese generals. And you see these generals living in luxury and 
their children and wives and dripping with jewellery and driving around the fancy cars and just the number of people that are starving to death. Tens of thousands of people in Burma. And you see this and, and the, the, there is, there is a, a version comes up. You see these people and you have a version. We've got a choice at that point. If we grasp the aversion and we become enraged, we become indignant, we can get energy from that and you can certainly start making a lot of noise and you can be up all night writing letters all around the world and so on. But, but also we need to consider, does that really, does that really help? This is the encouragement. There's not, there's not a doctrine about what you should or shouldn't do with the Burmese generals but rather to be mindful of our action and to see, does grasping at anger and indignation, does that help bring mental clarity and equip us with the ability to speak and act in skillful ways? Or does it actually poison the mind and encourage us to speak and act in ways that, even though they may be energetic, increase the division? Yeah. It reminds me of a, a teaching story that uh, I heard many years ago out of India. India produces some of the best teaching stories, and this story is about a, um, a snake that uh, was, uh, had the reputation for going around biting people all the time and uh, causing a lot of trouble. And one day the, uh, the village people asked the resident holy man to see if he could sort this thing out with a snake. And, and so the holy man goes to see the snake and has a, gives him a good talking to, really tells him, you know, this is, this is very unskillful, you know, you've already been reborn as a snake, your future rebirth is going to be even worse if you carry on going around biting people all the time. You've just, you just got to stop it. You've got to stop biting people. And really gives him a good telling off. And so, okay, so the snake listens to the holy man and agrees not to bite anybody. And that was that for a few weeks, a few months. And then one day the, the holy man's walking along the road and there in the dust in the side there's this... this bruised, beaten, bleeding, miserable, very unhappy snake. And the holy man looks at him and says, Oh, I recognize you. Yeah, I, yeah. He said, What happened to you? And the snake says, Well, you know, you told me that I wasn't allowed to bite anybody anymore. And, and so as a result, everybody had been beating me and kicking me and throwing stones at me and so on. And the holy man said, Well, I didn't tell you you couldn't hiss. And, you know, that's all right as well. You know, sometimes you've got to hiss at these people. You know, sometimes when people are taking advantage of you and, you know, I know sometimes it happens here in the monastery. We, we have people who, they think, oh, those monks are a soft touch. You need to get away with anything. So I just ring up Clive and say, Clive, <laughs> we need some help. <laughs> and we're very grateful. <laughs> or people, other people that uh, we very much depend on. But sometimes, uh, joking aside, sometimes, you know, we're not, we're not just talking about being goody-goody two-shoes. Yeah. Sometimes you do need to be very firm. Yeah? It's about, you know, where do you draw the line? You've all probably all seen children that are spoiled. Why are children spoiled? Why do children go off? Well, sadly, one of the reasons is because parents are so desperately afraid of being rejected by the children. The parents don't have enough self-love or not in a committed relationship where that needs being served adequately, and so they are starting feeding on the approval of the children. That's an inappropriate relationship. You know, the children need the parents to be able to say, boundary, no. And it doesn't matter how much you scream, it doesn't matter how much you jump up and down, it doesn't matter how much you throw stuff around, this is the boundary. You know, you're not having any more sugar. That's all there is to it. And if children don't have those clear, that clear message then the development of the child doesn't happen in an appropriate way. And then the child is disadvantaged. It's not because you hate the child that you say no to them. It's not because we hate the Burmese generals that we write letters or do what we can do to give a clear message that this is not condoned. Yes, we feel the passion. We feel the energy of life. But if there's right preparation like Mr. Wong, yeah. Yeah. he prepared himself so that instead of getting caught up in the passion, as he, said, as he said, I would not let myself panic. Yeah. He had this commitment to his religious training. His religion had equipped him with the skills so that he, he didn't follow the habitual reaction. 
It's so it's the easiest thing in the world to get indignant. It's so easy to get indignant. To, or to get greedy. It's very easy to get greedy. It's very easy to just react to a situation. But uh, as the Buddha pointed out on many occasions, doing things that are easy is not necessarily the path. The things that are difficult to do are sometimes the things that are most worth doing. And so we're so grateful and so fortunate. We have the example of the Buddha and the tremendous effort that he made in many lifetimes to cultivate the forces of goodness, the powers that precipitated this realization that he experienced that we refer to as enlightenment. And out of that was, came this teaching that we call the Buddhist religion, or the Buddhist teachings. I, I, sometimes people don't like the word religion, and I can understand that. It's um, you know, because religion is a, it's a very powerful tool, and depends how you understand the meaning of that word. Um, if you've been hurt in the past by a religion that was uh, not very balanced or applied skillfully, well then one can take a position against all religions. In fact, somebody, I was down in Cornwall this, this last week and we had a meeting there on Wednesday and somebody asked the question, is Buddhism, is it a religion or is it a philosophy? And certainly it's more than a philosophy. And philosophy uh, doesn't necessarily involve uh, training our action of body and speech. And Buddhism does. The Buddha's teaching the Buddha's eightfold path, the middle way the Buddha taught is the whole body mind training. This interest we have in being free is not just an intellectual pursuit, it's not just an intellectual argument. It's not just convincing ourselves intellectually, but rather it's engaging the whole body mind so that when we're everything collapses around us and goes dark and we're tempted to panic, we remember what we've learnt from our religious training, and we don't just follow our habits. And we turn to exercising these skills, become still. Remember to be in the moment. Don't follow habitual judgments. And so it involves the whole body-mind. Whether it's a religion or not, well, as I said, it depends on how you use that word. I personally don't have a problem with the word. I, 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 I tend to agree with those modern scholars who, who translate or who suggest that it comes to the root of that word is from a Latin word, religio, which my uh, ligare, I think, is that right? Is that how you pronounce it? My, my Latin scholar friend here. <laughs> Ample fourth educated boy. It's, uh, I always turn to him whenever I want anything uh, skilled. <laughs> uh, anyway, those of you that know Latin will perhaps correct my pronunciation, but uh, I think it's legare, it means to bind or to tie up. And relegio re- re- means to rebind. Uh, you could interpret that as uh, just to rein you in and tie you to a bunch of deluded beliefs and control you. That could be one way of understanding religion. Or it could be understood as, as I choose to believe it myself, is that it's a, a structure that, that contains us until we learn what we need to learn. When we've really learned what we need to learn, we don't need religion anymore. Religion, as far as I'm concerned, is a set of skillful means. Well, I suppose, yeah, if it's a good religion, if it's a true religion. It's a set of skillful means that enables us to endure what we need to endure to learn to stop scratching the itch and then let the healing take place. So long as we're scratching, then the healing won't happen. All the pain that we carry in our hearts, all the resentments, the disappointments, the fears, the worries, the anxiety, they won't heal if we keep demanding that they be otherwise. Being interested in being free from this pain, that's understandable. We're not talking about letting go of that level of desire, but letting go of the grasping to the desire, demanding that, that the pain go, the frustration go, the limitation go, demanding it, that's scratching the itch. And so what religion does is it equips us with the skillful means so that we can learn what we need to learn until letting go happens. And one, of the, one of my favorite images in this is um, talking about binding is uh, a talk I heard. I don't know where this originally came from, but for me it came from a talk given by the then sister Tanisra, 
one of our nuns, one of the first nuns, now living in South Africa, actually. And um, by the way, she's uh, going to come and visit, I think, um, sometime in June. And she's got a letter from her. So. And anyway, I heard her give a talk many years ago, and she was talking about the uh, story of Ulysses and how Ulysses had been told that he must not let himself hear the sound of the sirens because the sound of the sirens would, would draw him up onto the rocks and he would be dashed against the rocks and destroyed. Whatever he does, don't listen to the sirens because they're so beautiful, so attractive. And, but if you really, really have to listen to them, make sure that you get bound to the mast of your ship and then block up the ears of all the oarsmen with beeswax so they can't hear. Because if they can hear, they'll be on the island as well, and you're going to get dashed against the rocks. And, and Ulysses, apparently, he had this amazingly inquisitive mind that was so interested in everything. And, uh, and so he really wanted to listen to the sirens, and so he went along with this thing. Got himself bound to the mast, these big ropes, and, and then the oarsmen, you know, you've probably seen some pictures of these beautiful pictures that have been rowing past the islands and the sirens, the voice of the sirens coming. They are indeed the most beautiful, the most beautiful sound that he's ever heard. And, and he's desperate to go to these sounds. And, but the oarsmen can't hear, and so they're not paying any attention. He's wailing with, with, with despair. He's got to follow the sound. The desire is so strong. And he even breaks loose from these ropes at one stage. But then two of the strongest oarsmen get him and then chain him to the post. And so he can't break the chains, and so he's there. And he then actually gets to look at these sirens, and he sees that they're the ugliest, ugliest sin, these things. The sound is beautiful, but they're so ugly. But even after having seen how ugly they are, ugly old trolls that they were, even having seen how ugly they were, as soon as he closed his eyes, he was intoxicated by the sound again. Doesn't this sound like the sensual realm and how easily we get fooled by things? And if we haven't got something that binds us to the path, if we haven't got a commitment, if we haven't really made a clear conscious statement, I'm committed to being free, then it's very, very easy to get distracted. And when pleasure comes along, we think we're just enjoying pleasure, but we're not just enjoying pleasure, we're also grasping at pleasure. And so that's why I say we should complain about the pleasure of our life. It's not, well, not complain about the pleasure, but complain about or be cautious about the way we relate to the pleasure of our life. Not to be scared of pleasure. That wasn't what the Buddha was advocating. Yeah. Be like Ulysses, or Odysseus, depending on how you pronounce it. Yeah. Be like him, be interested. But to have such a strong binding to the mast, yeah. to the Bodhi tree, if you like, and to be so well connected that we can trust ourselves to not lose contact with that to which we're committed. To see beyond the way things appear to be, to see beyond the pleasure and to see beyond the pain of life, it does take this kind of a commitment. Yeah. All of us knows, all of us know how easy it is to get distracted. And, and, and whether it's in an everyday life, whether getting caught up yet again in some anxiety or worry or argument or resentment or whatever, or on subtle levels in meditation. We have some experience of finding that, that possibility that we have as human beings of being open, not closed off, not, not just kind of closing everything down and running away from life, being sensitive, being here, being present, but being still, inwardly still. The, the, the beauty of, of that inner stillness. Where, you know, even if thoughts arise... You can hear the thoughts and you hear them in perspective. Mm. Feelings arise, you can feel the feelings, but you feel them in perspective. And you know how appropriate that is. But then we lose it. And we get caught, caught up in something. Something comes up and the mind becomes obsessed by it. And, and you just can't let go of it. And say, I've got to let go of it. And there's only some object of desire that obsesses the mind. And you go to meditate and you just... The mind keeps going to it over and over again, or some resentment, and up it comes again, and he said this, the passion flares up, and the mind just won't let go of it. At that point, we've got to be very careful, because, again, like Ulysses, 
if, if he wasn't really well bound to the mast, if we don't have a very, very clear conscious commitment to the meditation object, then we do float off and get caught up. The attractiveness of the sirens seduces us and we get pulled into indulgence again. If it happens and it's not too serious, you say, oh, well, we're suffering again, and we learn from that. No judgment. We begin again. Well, it can also be, um, it can also be quite, uh, quite, uh, quite serious sometimes in meditation, some of the things that if we, haven't, if we don't have this understanding of the path of practice, how important it is to get the timing right, to get the timing right. Sometimes it's right to let go of our meditation object and to turn to the object of the sense that's disturbing us and to go towards it. But if our binding, if our, if our grounding in sati, as mindfulness and awareness is, is not strong enough, then we get seduced and pulled out. Well, sometimes the opposite also happens. Sometimes when people will be so committed to their meditation object or so committed to be, being still, so attached to being still, so attached to being peaceful, that uh, they never use investigation. And their meditation is completely an exercise in becoming anesthetized. Yeah. Use will as a kind of an anesthetic. Concentrate, 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 concentrate. Goodbye, cruel world. What a relief. Blotted that out again. And so you just sit there and, and you do. You find some people, some people have this ability and they sit there for hours and hours and just the mind is just blank and sitting there. <laughs> I don't have that problem, but some people have that problem. Yeah. And then as soon as they come out of the meditation, they could literally could be there, full lotus not kind of looking like a drongo, it's sitting there, full lotus, you know, really looking at like this for hours, in samadhi, but no investigation, no unwillingness, uh, maybe as a result of not getting the proper teachings, or could just be uh, bringing along a fear of the sensory world. And sometimes if you, you get hurt by the sensory realm a few times, and then you find the peace of samadhi, well, then you, you blame the world. Yeah. And so you say, well, I've got to escape from the world. And that's what the Buddha tried to do, actually. You know, after he let go of his 29 years of seeking sensual pleasure, he went to the opposite extreme. He said, I can't have any pleasure. Pleasure is dangerous. And we can use meditation like that and, and, uh, and get stuck. And, uh, but as refreshing as, and as nice as that might be while we're in meditation, that's not the point of the teaching either. It's just to sit, to meditate and become peaceful, that's not it. But to investigate, to be interested in being free, is it, at the right time. To turn from our stillness and to investigate, to question. Is that, what is this all about? And so um, some of you will have been down to Kusla House and seen our, our lovely new garden down there. That was uh, sponsored by good friends in Glasgow, uh, Mo. Uh, Motuza and uh, her son Lynn, dedicated to her parents, and and uh, beautiful garden, and and I've named it the Bojunga Garden, which is uh, of the seven factors of enlightenment, because you go in there, you find there's seven seats. There's only there's only five wooden seats, and the other two you have to find for yourself. There, but they're pretty obvious actually. Energy and bliss. You'll see them. There's the two over there by the cherry tree. There's there's mindfulness or awareness, and then investigation, and then there's energy, then there's bliss, and then there's relaxation, tranquility, and concentration, and then equanimity is one right next door to to the, the Buddha image that's coming from Edinburgh um, before too long. And uh, so anyway, the the point of telling about this is the second one, Dhamma Vichaya, the second factor of enlightenment. The first factor of enlightenment is awareness, mindfulness. To have to cultivate this watchfulness, this thing that, that was for the Buddha was so pristine, this watchfulness was so acute, so steady, so fully developed that on that night of his enlightenment where everything on the outside world had gone, you know, 
everything, he lost everything. He, even to the point of losing all his friends. And, and just there alone under the Bodhi tree. But his awareness was so pristine that he could watch everything that was coming and going, including all his past lives. He could watch and not get fooled by anything. Again, that picture up the back there, and the, Bodhi, the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree. His eyes are not closed completely, they're just partly closed. He's really watching what's going on. And there's these demons and monsters throwing spears at him and, and bows and arrows and... and, and uh, and there were seductive women were at the time trying to distract him from his, his pursuit. And Mara tried everything. It was just, just pull out all the stops, see if we can stop this guy reaching enlightenment. But the Buddha, his, his resolve and his awareness was so fully prepared that he was able to see it through to the end. Yeah. But it wasn't just awareness. It was also this Dhammavichaya, yeah. this investigation of reality. Dhammavichaya means investigation of reality or nature or the way things are. So this investigation of the way things are is not just something that the Buddha was doing and it's not just something that we do in meditation retreat when we have good fortune to let go of all the distractions of life, but it's something that we do the whole time. Investigation of our life. Questioning. Following that interest that we have is how can I live this life, the life that I'm living now with with Burmese generals doing what they're doing, with other countries doing what they're doing, with, with your partner or your business associate or, or your health or the weather, or whatever else is happening, with all of this, how can I be in the middle of all of this and be free? Because that freedom, that kind of freedom, not running away from the world, but that freedom to be in the world but not defined by the world. That's the freedom the Buddha realized. And that, he said is the ultimate happiness. So I offer these words today on the occasion of Waisak 2008 and hope that they support you in your contemplation. Thank you very much for your attention. Mm-hmm.